Today's episode is brought to you by Waiting in Waste High Water, the lyrics of Fleet Foxes, which contains frontman Robin Pecknold's complete lyrics from 55 Fleet Foxes songs, alongside notes on his creative processes, inspirations, and motivations, capturing the poetic and inventive storytelling that is a hallmark of the band's music says Brandon Taylor in his introduction to the book. There is something quite moving about seeing these 55 songs collected and assembled this way. Themes of family, friendship, love, destiny, loss, nature, and honest living bridge all of the albums and form the core set of concerns of this body of work. At the same time, you can see the evolution of the minds and hearts at work behind the lyrics. Waiting in Waste High Water is out now from Tin House. Today's conversation is a dream come true for me, one I've been thinking about with great anticipation and impatiently waiting to share with you. Occasionally, I get asked to be interviewed myself, almost always about being an interviewer, an interview about interviewing something I'm now comfortable doing, even though I prefer to be on the other side of the microphone, not in the spotlight. But recently, the writer Constance Malloy interviewed me for her blog, The Burning Hearth, a very in-depth three-part interview, and one that is unlike any I've experienced in that it focused at first on my own writing and because she started by asking about a piece of nonfiction of mine, that is, to put it lightly, intense and personal, the conversation becomes intense and personal. Past guest on the show, on the Crafting with Ursula series, William Alexander, he said that it reveals my superpower origin story, which I thought was really funny and great, but also kind of true in the sense that I wasn't bit by a radioactive spider, but we do explore multiple things that happened to me as disruptive and improbable as a radioactive spider as it relates to my own journey around listening and interviewing. That isn't why I'm bringing this up today, though I will link to this conversation in the email that goes out to supporters. But near the end of part two of this interview with Constance, the part where she's asking me about interviewing, she asks me if I would talk about any teasers about who is coming on the show in the future. And I told her that I like to hold that sort of information close to my chest because selfishly there is a lot of joy for me in the launch of an episode and the surprise of who it is. But I told her that I reserve one or two slots every year for improbable Hail Marys based on my own personal imagined dream conversations of people I both can't imagine will say yes and ones that if they do will be particularly fun to launch and share with the world. I told Constance that this fall had one of those improbable yeses that I couldn't believe and wouldn't believe until it actually happened. 
and that I was supposed to call them on the phone to discuss the logistics. And I told Constance it seemed unreal, like picking up the phone and calling Albert Camus or Jorge Luis Borges, saying, hello, Albert, remember me? I'm that podcaster in the United States, David Naiman. This is my long way of saying how personally excited I am to share this conversation with Alain Siksu, the person I didn't name in that interview with Constance. Alain Siksu is someone whose work has already made history, has already changed history a half century ago, but whose writings today, her recent writings, are still so incredibly vital and beyond what she herself even imagined she would be writing 20 years ago, looking forward. I bring up being interviewed as an interviewer by Constance also because I wanted to share my approach to today's interview in relation to Alain's request that the conversation be about an hour. We haggled a little bit and settled upon 75 minutes, more or less. And the reason I bring this up is there are whole universes to Sikhsu's work over the past many decades. Her work in literary and feminist theory, for which she is most known, only being one. Her deep engagement with the work of other people's writings, including her close friend Jacques Derrida. But also her many works of theatrical writing, not to mention what characterizes many of her books of the last 20 years, hybrid works that I suppose could be called novel memoirs. But it feels like the borderlands that these novel memoirs are exploring are less between fiction and nonfiction as between the conscious and the unconscious, between our dreams and our waking life, between the present and the past, between memory and history, between imagination and memory, between the self and the other within the self. Really, to even begin to talk about any of this well, to capture what Siksu has achieved and continues to achieve would merit a conversation of many hours. One that pushes three hours, perhaps, like the one with Rosemary Waldrop or the one with Jory Graham. So as an interviewer, I had to choose to try to touch on these many aspects of Sisu's writing life, to survey this world in a way that would favor breadth rather than depth, or to really focus in on what makes her novel memoirs so uniquely her own thing, to only suggest the other universes that we don't explore and to do so so that we can really explore this one, to preference depth over breadth, which is what we do today, focusing on two of her most recent novel memoirs, which we talk about in relation to a book of hers that I adore from the 90s called Three Steps on the Ladder of Writing, which I use to sort of root her current works in a matrix of, of previous thought. Alain's translator of 20 years, Beverly B. Brahek, was excited to hear that these hybrid works of Siksu would be the focus. Because like me, she feels like these works not only do not get the attention they deserve, but that they are particularly vital and dynamic writings 
that will be read long after we are all gone. My final thoughts before we begin today are about translation. There are many possible benefits and rewards of joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. One of them is the ever-growing bonus audio archive. But within the archive, some of the most robust and substantive aspects of it are around translation. Whether it be the poet Arthur Z walking us through how he would translate different eras of Chinese poetry as a way to usher his own poetry into a new phase, reading translations of his as illustrations of this, or poet Filmetras, who reads some of his Russian translations, including of Arseny Tarkovsky, the father of the iconic filmmaker, but also many long-form conversations with the translators of books that I discuss with the authors in the main conversation, from Emma Ramadan to Ellen Elias Bursich to Sophie Hughes. And today we are adding a long-form conversation with the Canadian poet and translator of Alain Siksu, Beverly B. Brahek, a conversation that is particularly intriguing because of the difficulties translating Siksu presents, difficulties beyond what most literary translations involve. And talking through these difficulties together really adds new layers and insights to what Alain and I discuss in the main conversation. We also talk about Annie Arnaud's Nobel win and the factors that might be at play behind the phenomenon that the lion's share of Siksu's work still remains untranslated into English. It's a fabulous and, and particularly complimentary addition to today's conversation. And the bonus audio archive is only one of an incredible number of things you can choose from when you become a supporter of conversations like this one on Between the Covers. You can check it all out at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode with none other than Alain Siksu. stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of like have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition, was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, poet, novelist, playwright, feminist theorist, literary critic, and philosopher, Alain Siksu, is a writer and thinker that Jacques Derrida called the greatest writer in the French language. 
Sixu founded Université de Paris 8 and its Center for Women's Studies, the first of its kind in Europe, and remains Emeritus Professor of Literature there. She's the author of more than 70 works of theory, fiction, philosophy, plays, poetry, and critical essays that often create new modes of exploring relationships between history, autobiography, literature, language, psychology, the unconscious, and dreams. She has written extensively about other writers, including Franz Kafka, Thomas Bernhard, Ingeborg Bachmann, and her extensive writing about Clarice Lispector is to be thanked for bringing Lispector's work to the notice of a larger audience outside of Brazil. In feminist theory, she coined the term écriture féminine, women's writing, a method and practice of literary writing which aims to deviate from traditional, masculine, logo- and phallocentric writing styles, one that examines the relationship between psychosocial inscription of the female body and female difference in language and text. While Sixu is considered a French writer and intellectual and is a longtime resident of France, neither of her parents are of French descent. Sixu was born and grew up in Oran, Algeria, with a Sephardic North African Jewish father and a German Ashkenazi Jewish mother. I bring this up because since the 1990s, Sixu has increasingly engaged both in her travels and her writings with the quote-unquote places of origin of her family, first in Algeria and more recently in the last 20 years, a growing series of books about the town in Germany, Osnabrück, that her mother fled from to Algeria before the town's Jewish inhabitants were eradicated during the Nazi regime. These books include Osnabrück Station to Jerusalem, a memoir, winner of the French Voices Award for Excellence in Publication and Translation, of which Maggie Nelson said, Language in Sixu's hands is molten, constantly opening onto fresh possibilities. Her Osnabrück station to Jerusalem is an act of imagination, investigation, sojourn, and witness, driven by terrible necessity and marbled with fierce, incomparable beauty. The occasion of our talking today is the arrival of another of her books into English about Osnabrück, coming this December from Siegel Books, in a translation by the Canadian poet and translator Beverly B. Braik, entitled Well-Kept Ruins, a book Brian Dillon describes as drifting easily between memoir the reported memories of others, and what must be imagined. A hybrid genre-defined memoir, Well-Kept Ruins is, in Dylan's words, moving, elusive, and formally daring. Welcome to Between the Covers, Alain Sixou. Thank you. Thank you, David. So in, in your book, Osnabrück Station to Jerusalem, you say that when Osnabrück arrives in Oran, Algeria, in 1938. In other words, when your mother arrives in 1938, it is the saved Osnabrück, the charming one, that your mother throughout your childhood 
recounted hundreds of stories about this wondrous Osnabrück to you. And I think of this when you write in that book, I cannot say that I have not lived in Osnabrück as long as and longer than Orong. And also, there are days when Osnabrück is a dream, days when I am born in Osnabrück. When, when you do eventually go to the city, there are ways as a reader it feels like you're entering a dream. You're entering the stories that you lived in as a child, the ghosts of these stories, but also discovering the unspoken nightmares that your mother never told you. Um, and your mother never planned to return to Osnabrück. And you say in Well-Kept Ruins that back in 1994 that you wrote that you would never write about your mother. Uh, and you seem surprised in both of these books by the way your writing life is now circling or orbiting both Osnabrück and your mother. And I was hoping maybe you could talk about this new, somewhat enduring interest after many decades of feeling like neither your mother nor Osnabrück would become subjects of your work. But now they're both uh, central to, to many of your books. Thank you, David. Um, first of all, I, I just want to make a, a tiny correction. Uh, 1938 is the date when my grandmother arrived in Oran. Uh, after witnessing the Kristallnacht, I don't know how one says that in English. Is the it same the, way. Or Christ, Kristallnacht? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and she, so she joined my mother in Oran. Well, my mother was there in 1936 and prepared for my coming to to this world in in a completely new environment, geographically, historically, coming from Germany to Africa. So this was for her a, a huge adventure. But then of course it was in in the height of Nazism. And when she left, when my mother left Germany, it, it was full Nazism. But but she was very lucid as a as a young a very young woman, and the moment the Nazis uh, were in power and and started inventing the different and uh, unheard of uh, repressions and uh, and dispersion, she she took her suitcase and and went away. Mm. Then my grandmother and her sister, who was three years younger, followed her. She understood that my mother was completely aware of the near future. My grandmother didn't then follow. So for me, it's a huge question, which of course I, I keep questioning for literary and philosophical reasons. How is it that some people had a kind of life instinct and which drove them to immediately find a door out, which huge theme of course how how can, how do you leave how how do you manage which is a, a question that is now a contemporary question we we have that with the ukrainians etc you you have you have to leave do you leave why don't you leave and of course for for me this this was one of the mysteries of human nature how do you pack why and why don't you when, of course, it is possible. There, there's a moment in German history when it, it became impossible. But there were a couple of years when you could leave. 
when you could flee, whatever. And when it, it was possible for you as an individual to, to manage going out. So it, and these questions, of course, are haunting. They haunt all the, the people who, who try thinking, contemplating, analyzing the, these situations. Did my grandmother, for instance, wake up after the Kristallnacht? Where, particularly, this is the subject of uh, ruins well kept. The synagogue was was burnt down. The synagogue which her own father had decided to build in Osterbrück, and and who the synagogue for me it's personified. Who was a young synagogue? It, it was it was erected in 1906. So it has a short life, a very short life, and then it disappeared in in smoke and and bones. Was it that? I don't know anything about that. I, I, so I tried to figure out what she must must have thought, considering too that uh, she she belonged to a large, very large family. So there were eight siblings and tens, twenties. Uh, cousins of all kinds from all all parts of Germany who either stayed, fled, survived, or were decimated and all sent to concentration camps. So for me, it's it's not simply, simply a picturesque uh, tale of uh, of Jews. It's it's a real subject, a theme for meditation on decision on how human beings preserve life or or on the contrary uh, are almost drawn by by death well let me ask you a question about your own decision making process in Osnabrück station you place two things in parallel what you call the dangerous invitation the invitation extended to your mother by the town of Osnabrück a town that's now devoid of Jewish life entirely. The town invites her to come back and be honored by them. And then this other invitation for you to speak at Hebrew University in Israel, which felt like another unwanted invitation, one that you said yes to because you wanted to say no. And of your mother, you say, she thought she could not not say no. She could not say no. She could not say yes. I wanted to ask you about saying yes because you wanted to say no, not specifically related to Hebrew University necessarily, but perhaps in a broader sense in your work. You, you say explicitly in Osterbrook Station that you feared writing that book. And in the first book you write on Osterbrook in 1999, itself also called Osnabrück, you write, I should go once to Osnabrück with Mama, to Osnabrück where I have never gone. I should, I should find the time, the desire, the station, I thought, and I tried to want to go there for her birthday. In the end, you didn't go there for many, many years after this line, but the line, I tried to want to go there, suggests a sense of peril to me. But what makes your work so powerful, I think, is your willingness to say yes when you want to say no. And I wondered if you could speak to this, that 
perhaps the writing that you seek will be found inside of this no. Yes, we, we could have a kind of a whole philosophy <laughs> with characters who, who would be yes and no. They're not pure, they're unpure. Um, particularly concerning uh, real issues, uh, earnest issues. It's not, you know, just uh, uh, taking part in a meal or saying yes to a chocolate or whatever. No. We are, I mean, as human beings, as human trying to think and uh, and being uh, thwarted in our thinking by all kinds of obstacles, we're always torn, we're always divided. We, we are never one, we are several. And every time we have to make a decision, shall I marry? No. Shall I divorce? Yes, no. No, yes. No, yes, yes, yes. No, yes. That's how we, we work. We are worked by all kinds of desires, fears, desire and fear mixed, of course, and uh, for so many reasons, which we we discover gradually. Why why do I want not want to go to Osnabrück? Of course, it has to do some. It has to do with something in Osnabrück. Osnabrück is, is a huge. It's a tiny, huge planet full of traces of suggestions. Uh, it's uh, it's a metaphor for the universe. It, it's it's a moon, uh, and this is explainable historically by any anybody who goes to a snapbook. There are so many features, so many traits that explain the fact that it can attract or repel. But then, of course, it's the meeting of the, the attraction or repulsion of Osnabrück and a, an individual who are overdetermined. Of course, it's like a kind of uh, it's a kind of a mathematical structure which we, we have to, to to analyze. It's it's very interesting. Through my writing, ever since I started writing, so a long time ago, as you know. I realized that I had to face this kind of permanent dilemma, which is not mine. It's that of all humans, except that very often, you know, you just repress the thing because it's uh, it's uncomfortable. But then it makes you human. Should I do that or not? Macbeth, shall I kill or not? And then who has decided that he's going to kill? There's so many instances that bring him to killing, whereas he thinks he should not. I'm not Macbeth. But he's a human being, as all of us. It, it becomes something which is a kind of a, of a, a play with, with fate, when you realize that so many times you, 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 you're sure or you affirm that you're, doing, you're going to do something or not. Uh, when there is resistance, then there it is interesting. There, the battle, the spiritual, moral, philosophical battle is important. There it is. That you. So as a writer, of course, it's there that write, writing should go and explore. And of course, <laughs> so many in my own life particularly, so often have I said, sworn, I shall never do that. And five minutes later, I do it. It's not because I am 
so absurdly uh, hesitating. No, uh, the battle inside between the unconscious and unconscious <laughs> has go been going on, and so, and of course, if we were in Freudian regions, then we would say it's the the, the an example of resistance, of Widerstand. Should I resist or should I resist resistance? Well, maybe in light of this question around yes, no, it, it made me think of something from your book in the 1990s, the three steps on the ladder of writing, where we must pass through three schools, the school of the dead, the school of dreams, and the school of roots. But before anything, we must pass through the school of the dead. You say in this section that, quote, writing is learning to die, learning not to be afraid, in other words, to live at the extremity of life. And you also say, the only book worth writing is the one we don't have the courage or strength to write. The desire to die is the desire to know. It is not the desire to disappear, and it is not suicide. It is the desire to enjoy. And you quote Kafka, who says, if the book we're reading doesn't wake us up with a blow on the head, what are we reading it for? And Clarice Lispector, who says, I wanted to die once and come back to life simply in order to know the juice of life that is death. My days are numbered without my knowing it. I would like to die now, already, in the fullness of life, and after death, remember for the rest of my life. You say very few books hurt us, and the books that do break the frozen sea and kill us are the books that bring us joy. And I think of this when your son asks you a question in one of these Osnabrück books. Do you know anyone in Osnabrück? My son asks me. And you answer, a crowd of dead people, people who are very much alive in books. They are waiting for me, I say. And I feel this sense of you putting yourself at peril in your writing. There are moments when I feel like as a reader, I lose my breath. And I was hoping maybe in light of this, um, you could speak to this, to this, the school of the dead from your book on writing and this crowd of dead people who are very much alive waiting for you um, in this light. It's something that of course is my way of, of of being as the ancients were most familiar with, that is knowing, feeling, behaving as what they used to call being mortals. They were mortals. Uh, somehow our culture now, or our civilization, uh, has put the, 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 the mortal feeling at a distance. But for me, it's there. We are mortals. But being, what, what does it mean? That it doesn't mean, for instance, that we were threatened, we are poor things, or desperate things. No, on the contrary. It, it, it is that we have to do with the unknown, 
the unpredictable, which is the sort of, of life. If I am I'm structured like that, I, I do realize that, that it's an inheritance, not only my historical, genealogical in, inheritance as, as a Jew of different uh, continents and uh, orientations, but also because in my own strictly individual story, I started with death. It, I was born in at the height of uh, world destruction, and of course I knew about it, and I was fascinated by that. And at the same time, although I I was a, a witness to destruction and death, not only because it was the Second World War, but also because of my family's uh, genealogy, but also because Algeria was a colonial country where death was the master of, of, the, of the country, as uh, um, Ceylon would say. So I knew we had to do with the, the extremity as it is accompanied, as it's not dissoci dissociable from, from joy. My, my family was full of joy. And, and full of laughter and full of humor. And at the same time, in the middle of turmoil. And of course it did for uh, the, the miracle of life that threatened, threatened. Uh, and how, how do we connect with, with death? Because we're, we're fearful. When, when, we, when we're afraid, we're afraid of death, always. Uh, I'm afraid of water, I'm afraid of being drowned, etc. And it's very strong. So, thinking about it, and uh, I think that all philosophers ha ha had to deal with that. I, I used to enjoy and and uh, and discuss with, with Montaigne, our great uh, philosopher writer, who, who used to say that philosophie c'est apprendre à mourir, to, to think in in philosophical ways, is is uh, is the only way to to learn how to die. Mm. He was terrified by by death. Would think about it all the time. And so, when you read the essays, uh, as Shakespeare has done, because he read Montaigne, during the two thirds of two thirds of his fantastic, unique work and way of re re reflecting on on all human fate, uh, suddenly he thought, no, maybe it's not really learning to die, maybe it's learning to live, you know. He, he realized that they were the, the bo both the faces of the same approach to life-death. You, you cannot think of one without the other. And of course, uh, there's another influence that suddenly permeates life, because the, when, when you start aging, which starts very, 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 I'm, I mean, hesitating, should, should I say early or late? I won't choose. Um, then gradually, death comes nearer and nearer and nearer. And, and you will realize that death is not only death. I mean, we, don't, we have nothing to say about death. It doesn't exist. Uh, what we have to say is about 
what what do we do with life with what is given with time how do we transform time in creation well th thinking about the fear of death um you say again in the three steps on the ladder of writing that we can hope to move closer to everything we can't say without dying or fright through the school of dreams, that the school of dreams is located under the bed and that we get to the school of dreams through a detour. And in that section, you talk about Jacob's ladder in his dream and the importance of the angels going down, descending the ladder. And I'm thinking of this descending in relation to something you say in Well-Kept Ruins. You say, this is not a return. No one will ever return to Osnabrück. This is archaeology. And archaeology, of course, makes me think of a descent into the earth. But your archaeology is very dreamlike, I think. We travel with you to Osnabrück. We are with your memories of what your mother said about it. We are with what you yourself have imagined about it. We are with the way you dig into and unearth the history of the place itself. For instance, the watchtower where hundreds of women accused of being witches were held before trial and execution. Um, much like your midwife mother was accused of being a witch in Algeria before she was imprisoned and expelled as a foreign presence there. And then you link that to the astronomer Johannes Kepler passing through Osnabrück, whose own mother, like yours, was accused of witchcraft. So, so we have this sedimentation of memory, imagination, history, and also your in-the-moment experience, which involves these great conversations, these back and forth between you and your children, your son and your daughter, as this experience of you being there unfolds. And the way this is all metabolized in your mind, just like you were talking just now about Montaigne and Shakespeare, you metabolize all of this archaeology through the lens of literature and myth on top of it all, where, as you say, I followed the traces of Job trampled and skinned alive in German, or the way the carcass of the burned synagogue after Kristallnacht is described as like King Hamlet assassinated. And, and like in much of your work, your, your journey into the underworld is often intersecting with figures from Homer as well. I, I bring this all up because speaking about the school of dreams, you say, we may have to leave our bed the way a river overflows its bed. Perhaps leaving the legitimate bed is a condition of the dream. In this spirit, I feel like sometimes I'm reading your writing as, I, as we're in Osnabrück, and I don't know where I stand in your words. I'm in a river where the solid ground suddenly might drop away into deeper water where your voice and other voices aren't separated entirely, but feel like they're part of a stream. 
And I wondered if you could speak a little bit about your notion of what writing as archaeology is, and if it is partially an archaeology of the unconscious as much as it is an archaeology of, of the place of Osnabrück and its history. Just let me insist that it's not a theory. I'm not, I, I don't theorize on that. It's the way I am inspired, um, driven to, uh, I follow the spirits of writing. And, um, and uh, of course, what I realize is that there is no uh, real separation between all the the relations we have with the dead and and the, the not yet born, uh, which is one of the reasons too for the, the the presence of my children, who are the future. I don't know what's going to to happen with them. What and they are they they represent centuries, further centuries, as I myself are. Um, uh, I should say are actually. It would be more accurate, um, peopled by former centuries who are still there, who are quite present. Uh, I, I, I feel where I live, while even while we, uh, we speak about uh, events, present events. Now I was speaking with my friends and my children of what is happening now with the, with the Ukrainians. And for me, it's I realize it's well. It's another figure of Exodus, but so it has already happened quite differently, with other causes, other results, and and permanent features. Uh, the fact that how do you flee? It's most striking and and uh, moving. So uh, it's exactly as when uh, COVID started. It's uh, it's rain on on mankind. <laughs> I thought, well, it's exactly exactly what uh, the he who, who wrote the, the War of Peloponnese to see did. But you know that's uh, before Christ. Uh, it's it's the, the the beginnings of history, really. Or it might have been after all, even if it was four hundred years before Christ. Uh, it, it's. Uh, it's also 1,600 years after with, uh, with the foe. You know, it's, it's today. It, and today is yesterday and tomorrow, always. And when, when you, you're aware of that, you're all the time, you belong to so many times that they're contemporary. It's not something artificial. It's, it's, it's the, something that I'm, I'm built like that. I, I feel like that. So that's regarding time. I was following the traces of the witches in um, in Osnabrück. It's extraordinary. Why is Osnabrück extraordinary at from this point of view, for instance? It's a city which was a small city in the time of my grandmother and my mother. It is 20,000 inhabitants. Now it's 165,000. It's a big city in Germany. And um, you you go there, and you go as my mother did. So I too, you know, if where my mother went, I went with her, even if I was not born, I was going to, and uh, following 
the square where uh, her house used to, to stand, you, you take a very narrow alley, lane, it goes down like that, and uh, in in uh, 100 or 200 meters, you're in front of the river where they would drown uh, the the witches. And and the, the, the lane is called Witches Lane, and and uh, all the inhabitants in Osnabrück take it. It's still there as it as it was uh, uh, almost a thousand years ago. You know, it goes on and on. It's there. It's not forgotten. It's not uh, wiped out. So you you still following and accompanying the witches. And of course, you they they are shouting, howling, and you don't know whether you're for them or against them, etc., etc. So it goes on like that. To stay with this idea that this isn't a theory for you, this is the way you experience things. I wonder if it's the way we all experience things that that we we keep these these different things separate as categories in writing, but in real life and real consciousness, we don't keep them separate as categories. Like I'm thinking of your of the review in English of your latest book, Well Kept Ruins. And Brian Dillon saying how your book drifts between memoir, the reported memories of others, and what must be imagined, which I think we probably are drifting between all the time uh, when we're not writing. But it does feel like your books refuse category or genre, or as some people say, they transgress category. Uh, When you say things like, all Germany knows that no one knows where Osnabrück is. Osnabrück is a fiction. I think that points to your transgression of category two. But your writing also does this on the level of the sentence and of the paragraph. Uh, I want to read something that your translator of Osnabrück's station, Peggy Kamuf, says at the beginning of that book. For Siksu, writing is first of all an intransitive practice, by which I mean that it does not convert written language immediately into transitive objects or reference, but suspends referential movement in its own space of writing. There are many ways in which it accomplishes this. And then she talks about how your sentences can, without warning, become poetic lines with white space, that some sentences don't end with periods, where commas may or may not be there, so that the sentences sometimes might spill over or not end or not close. And you're also often playing with multiple meanings semantically of words, but also multiple ways different words might share a sound with each other, which must be an impossible challenge for your translators. I would imagine. Peggy says about all of this, to read Siksu is to watch writing live and breathe on the page as in a kind of theater where the characters are letters or words. And for me, I feel like it adds to this dream logic of the reading reading experience as well. Um, But how would you speak to the ways you're writing at the level of syntax or or punctuation, or, or at levels of the sentence, writing outside of the riverbed of convention and norms. Uh, 
could, could you speak a little bit to um, some of those choices that you're making on the level of, of the line and the sentence? Uh, I don't choose, of course. Uh, writing chooses. It's very powerful, you know, when I, I, I think or I imagine or I, I have hallucinations. Uh, I, um, I, I go to a permanent theater and then I start writing and writing is much more it is swifter, uh, more inventive than I am. You know, it 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 leads. I follow. I follow. Just let me tell you something about fiction because it's most. I, I appreciate what Peggy said because it's it's quite true and uh, and important. Uh, you quoted Kepler, and this is where I, I, then I lost my thread, and I want to go back to that. So I'll I'll tell you a secret. You should tell me. If you tell me a secret, it won't be a secret anymore. Never mind. It, I'll tell you a secret. It will become a secret again after a while. Kepler. Kepler went to Osnabrück and he didn't stay. Uh, he, it's because my, the book told me. Uh, did, but where did he stay in Osnabrück? So I tell him, there, in, in, on this page. Kepler never went to Osnabrück. But, oh, well. ah, no, it's that's a secret, so don't say it. <laughs> but why not? Uh, Kepler, so no one can say when reading me, this is true, this is uh, memoir, this is uh, uh, memory. No, it's I, I myself, I don't know. It's the writing and the book who decide. It's obvious that Kepler had to go to Osnabrück, which it's one of the reasons why no one has ever suspected that he didn't go to Osnabrück. He went to the moon. He was on the moon. He was persuaded that he was on the moon. He wrote that fantastic book on the moon. I myself, I suspect him to tell us a secret, which is not a secret. But then it's, you know, making a difference between those different possibilities this is what makes for the poetical aspect of uh, creation, I won't say simply writing. And uh, of course, what I resist, but this is from the very beginning of my starting to write, I, I resist what I might call now poetically correct. No, it's never correct. It's never correct. It's just fantastic, always. And we 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 lose fantasy when we are in reality what we call reality which is of course undermined by unreality but we're supposed to and and the moment you start writing there is certainly an instance somewhere inside a voice that says you you should communicate with the, the readers don't invent say the truth which doesn't exist but the, the, the writing the written truth is the truth of course so it's like that. You cannot write something which doesn't r resist the, the disbelief of the reader. It, it must be believable. It is believable. No one will, will prove that Kepler never went to Osnabrück. Mm -hmm. And then I realize that I discover suddenly that if Kepler never went to Osnabrück, Hitler stayed in Osnabrück, which I realize much later the wealth of the different worlds that communicate and exchange when you write. 
Well, to return to your story specifically, I'm thinking of you saying, my own writing was born in Algeria out of a lost country of the dead father and the foreign mother. And I, I want to talk about the the impossibility of origins, of, of forming an identity with a stable, coherent sense of origin. But instead of maybe writing from or toward the impossibility of that, the, the first chapter of The Well-Kept Ruins is called To the Center of the Center of the World. And in that chapter you say, where are we off to? To the center of the world, say I as always. And when I think of you traveling to the center of the center, with Osnabrück now being that center, but also being a place of expulsion, I think of a lecture you gave on the notion of the garden. And gardens, of course, evoke mythically both origin and expulsion also. But you talked about a garden in Algeria when you were a child called Military Circle that was prohibited to both Jews and Arabs, but that you would peer into. But eventually, because your father was posted as an army doctor for the French, you were let in due to his association. And you say you never felt more outside than when you were finally let in. You were spit upon by fair-haired French children who called you a lying Jew. But thinking about being at the center of the center of the world, I think about when you described a nursemaid who referred to you as trash and poked the end of her umbrella into your navel in a way that you say hurt you both physically and psychically. And I guess I wondered about this wounded navel because a navel itself is a locked door to a place you can't return. So when I read the line from your book, The Reveries of a Wild Woman, where you say, the whole time I was living in Algeria, I would dream of one day arriving in Algeria. I would have done anything to get there. It reminds me of how you also write about Osnabrück, I think, which makes me wonder if the center of the center of the world is really an impossible place, a, a nowhere and an everywhere. It's very beautiful what you say. <laughs> uh, well, what is interesting for us is to realize that we we go towards the the, the so-called center, which is uh, let, let, let I imagine it's not a promised land. Maybe it's the promised paradise where we we never arrive except to be expelled. It's the, the same operation. That's physical or mathematical. You 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 have to to have a starting point, which which is the navel. After all, you're quite right. In order to then elaborate ways, directions, um, aims which are nebulous, as as the all scientists experience that, they have hypotheses. And these hypotheses are all powerful. They 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 carry the, the scientific mind to, to moons, to planets, etc. And uh, so 
and then when they arrive, it's it's something else. And of course, it's wonderful that it's it should be something else. But it's it's like that that happens. But in this something else, there is a, a progress, something that has changed places and promises something further. Um, so when you quoted those pieces of uh, that you've seen in my writing, it's exactly like the Kepler example. It's it's a mixture of absolute crude reality. That is the the experience which is the, the primal scenes of my life, which happened when I was three, and the the date is absolutely without doubt. Which I, how, how do I know that? It's because it had to do with the fact that we were admitted in the garden, which in the forbidden garden the white forbidden garden when my father became a, a lieutenant in, in the army as a doctor. That was necessarily in 1939. And in 1940, the Jews were expelled from everything. This happened in 1939. I was just three. I remember every word and every... I'm not making um, fun with that. It's it's really, it happened like that. I, I learned everything at, at that point. And of course, uh, there's, I, I didn't give all the details because it's a, it's a huge uh, novel in itself. One thing which is not true, but it, it's in other way true, is the quotation you did of the, the, the maid who uh, uses the, the, the end of her umbrella to, to poke the, 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 the navel. Because this did not happen in real, in reality, in in outside reality, mm. it happened inside reality. What happened with the maids amounted exactly to this. The metaphor is is true. It's true. That's what happened. Mm. Well, thinking about thinking further about impossible origins or homes, your father's family, I would imagine, probably arrived. In North Africa, after the expulsion from Spain and Portugal, uh, your during your childhood, the Jews of Algeria are made stateless by the Vichy government, and your mother was not only a refugee in flight from Germany to Algeria, but also someone who becomes a midwife after your father dies and remains in Algeria after the revolution, seeing Algeria as her home, working there as a midwife but she's ultimately imprisoned and expelled again a second time in her life as a foreign presence. And you write, all of a sudden my mother, who is at one with the Algerian body as she never was the German bodies, is expelled like a foreign body, like a sea from one wave to the next, excommunicated. And you, you explore the circumstances of her expulsion in well-kept ruins as you go through her belongings, her suitcase. And that suitcase becomes many other suitcases. For instance, when you say, as usual at the border with the next dream, I see that disheartened man who could be a cousin. It's Walter Benjamin, the man who can't close his suitcase. Could you, could you talk to us a little about the pretense under which your mother was imprisoned and kicked out. You do go into that in the book 
to a degree. Um, what were what was the reason or reasons that your mother was um, kicked out of Algeria? Well, I have to ask her. Maman, tu permets que je dise quelque chose à David? Because she doesn't, she doesn't like to speak about that. So I have to ask her permission. Um, it's something that has hurt us and has hurt her uh, even more than what happened in Germany. Uh, because she, she had a distance regarding Germany from the beginning as experiencing what was happening in Germany with her father who died for Germany, who was a soldier and who enrolled for the, as, a, as a German. Uh, in, in Algeria, she, as, as I say, which is it's true, um, she, she accomplished completely something that she had never dreamt about, never knew it would happen. And uh, she, she became herself completely. That is an independent woman who who was helping life to 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 uh, to overcome all kinds of obstacles. She she was an excellent midwife, and after all, she she escorted thousands of Algerians to history to to life. So she she didn't um, identify at all with. Algerian history or with with men in Algeria. She, she was on the side, but without being political. She was naturally, spontaneously on the side of the, the, the difficulty for women in Algeria to to enjoy their lives. You know, it, it was terrible. So there, she, she had found her her necessity on on earth. You know. And and when she was ejected, she was deprived of something which she deserved, which she had built completely, and where she was excellent. And this happened. This happened, uh, and it was particularly stri striking. First, there was one episode, the one when she was put into prison, and it was on on the very days of independence. Suddenly, she disappeared. I was in France with my family, and no news. She had disappeared. Mm. Took a number of days, maybe two or three weeks, before one of her assistants could reach me and tell me she was in, in prison. In the prison where all Algerian resistance uh, used to be incarcerated. So it was a kind of plot that was elaborated by um, uh, certain crooks, Algerian, new Algerians, new Algerians, crooks, who wanted to uh, wanted her to go so that they could uh, appropriate their, the nursing house of my mother, where she, she put all the children through life. And uh, so she, they, she was accused of aborting women, not bringing children to life, but aborting uh, women, and um, and and for this reason, she, she was immediately arrested. And so, actually, um, it was demonstrated. But I had to take a lawyer. It's so it's a long story. That this was completely made up, and and the people who had 
elaborated and 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 achieved completely this this uh, this plot uh, were arrested in in the and um, unmasked completely mm. so it was a happy end but it's not a happy end of course what what the the interesting thing is what my mother did with the prison she turned it into a house where she where she was imprisoned with other women who were all poor poor things prostitutes uh, uh, thieves it's all women of course and it was a community so she enjoyed it actually she would tell me don't say it but i enjoy myself here at least I don't have to get up during the night to run. <laughs> so, mm. but of course, it was a trauma. So she she continued to live in Algeria after she got out of prison before she was expelled, right? And then there was also something lovely that is the, the director of the prison made friends with her, and so later he had three three daughters who then had children, whom my mother brought to to light so it was a nice friendly story uh, but of course she she knew that it wasn't safe then most the french had been expelled anyway she, she didn't belong to that kind of uh, population and she, she didn't uh, identify at all with the pianoir in in nigeria she she still was german but Outside nationality, her nationality was before documents. You know, before the the, the children were had an identity, and um, and then suddenly there was a, a second alert uh, in seventy one. So nine years later, she was again called by the police, and then she didn't she didn't wait. She took a suitcase and took her a couple of hours, and she was out. Yeah. Uh, all the remaining um, medical people in, in Algeria, very uh, handful of people who were supposed to be French, they were expelled at that, at that time, all, all of them. Well, you have this line in the preface to Osnabrück Station to Jerusalem, where you write, going to Osnabrück is like going to Jerusalem. It's finding and losing. It's exhuming secrets, resuscitating the dead, letting the mute speak and it's losing the absolute freedom to be Jewish or not be Jewish at will, a freedom that I enjoy conditionally. And I wondered about this last part, losing the absolute freedom to be Jewish or not be Jewish at will. If that is related to these expulsions or if you're thinking of something else, when you say that line. Uh, that's a uh, very common experience when you go to Israel, which I, I don't do. That is, I have done it so seldom, <laughs> and, and it's problematic. Um, I've never been a Zionist. My mother was never a Zionist. Um, then I belong to this huge diaspora where you have all kinds of choices, attitudes, etc., towards Judaity, and particularly now towards Israel, what was Palestine, Israel, etc. And you have so many options of relating to this uh, being, which is Israel, whether it's the, the, the causes and consequences of its appearing on, on the earth among, among countries, country among countries. F for me, uh, 
I I I do know, but it's uh, I have no no hesitation there that um, I'm fundamentally um, I'm I'm Jewish, but in 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 the European way or the Ashkenazi way, I don't know. It's it's not even that, you know. That is, um, I have often had to to realize that there were causes, urgent causes, human causes, uh, which required my uh, being uh, committed, involved completely. And when I was a, a child, uh, I, I grew up as anti-colonialism uh, for the freedom of all people, independence, uh, and 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 the the hatred that was uh, aimed at me every day, uh, I was used to that, uh, was triggered by anti-Semitism, a mixture of anti-Semitism, of both anti-Semitisms, that of the, the Algerians and that of the French, of the Europeans. So I thought, well, first cause, racism. Racism. I'm an anti-racist. But the moment I arrived in France, I, I realized something that I had not expected. I realized I was a woman and that the enemy on earth for all cultures was woman. Uh, it was a surprise for me. I should have thought about that in Algeria, but no, the urgent cause was then that racism, which is still there, of course. Now, here in, in Europe, where I, where I live, where I live by chance, I'm, I'm a chance uh, inhabitant of Europe, I keep feeling that I, I enjoy, um, I, was, I was born, I could say I was born a girl, for instance, uh, I was born a diaspora Jew uh, who enjoyed the privilege of um, possibly being, for instance, French by chance, completely by chance, and it's completely insecure. It's not, you know, um, but I might have been whatever, all, all kinds of different nationalities. I'm not obliged every day to be Jew, feel Jew, think Jew. No, I, I belong to a kind of a, a fantastic nation, which is that of literature. I, I feel at ease. I feel at home. I'm, it's, it's, uh, I'm naturally a, a writer. I belong to books. So, but of course, the moment there, there is uh, a danger, a real danger, not, not a made up, uh, or a movement of unfairness, of disgusting hatred that um, is turned against uh, the, the Jewish phantasm uh, in, in people's minds, then I am Jewish. Um, so it's not that I stop being Jewish, no. It's, it's not the, the first care that uh, requires all my strength, which, is, which makes for my possibility also to identify with other uh, populations or who, who suffer and who, after all, have the, the same kind of fate, except that the Jewish fate is exceptional because it's so long-lasting, it's everlasting. But the 
the cause of women is everlasting, you know, yes. going on and on, as long as uh, being a Jew. So, now, going to Israel, which happens very rarely in my existence, um, is not being able to being not Jewish. You go there, you're Jewish. How, how can you, I mean, and Jewish, I should say, you're one or one of the thousand ways of being Jewish in Israel. So you're that huge um, crowd of uh, possibilities, hostilities, uh, family hatreds, etc., etc. To this, I don't belong. I do belong to a less overdetermined human uh, context. Well, maybe we can stick with this notion of overdetermination. When we talk about the notion of the well-kept ruin within the book, The Well-Kept Ruin, um, in Osnabrück Station to Jerusalem, you ask yourself, why do I come here? And your answer is, I have come to cultivate ruin and flourish memory. But in well-kept ruins, you encounter, instead of the carcass of a burned-out synagogue, you discover what you call a well-kept ruin, a wire mesh cage of neatly stacked blonde stones. And then in, in that book it goes, Look at that, my son says. It's something you might see in a garden. It's the last word in landscaping. It requires explanation if you don't know what it is. And you write, They show the stones. They hide the destruction. Death is absent. There is no ruin. What is heartrending in a ruin, they removed, sterilized. These neat remains, labeled and caged, are a portrait of my inner ruins. It almost feels like the well-kept-ness of the ruin is an extension of what caused the ruin in the first place, a memorial to cleanliness and decorum, perhaps. Um, you don't say this explicitly, but it almost feels like it could be an inadvertent memorial to the Nazis rather than the Jews. But I, w I wondered if you could speak more um, to this notion of well-kept-ness, uh, which you respond to quite deeply in the book. Yes, it's a, it's a good question. Of course, for me, it doesn't relate at all to the Nazi uh, aesthetics. But there is something which uh, can plead uh, to in 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 the way you perceive you might perceive that uh, first of all I noticed because it was I think only the third time I went to Osnabrück that I had gone walking in the street without realizing that it was there so so it wasn't so very demonstrative or I avoided seeing it it's not very it's not very big as I say it's the size of my son and I, when I realized it third time I went through this very elegant street, you know, which, of course, caught my attention. And I, I saw that. I thought, well, there are so many memorials everywhere, Manmal, and uh, in, in Germany. 
uh, some are for me moving and and uh, convincing this this is very touching in 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 Osnabrück because it's so it's it's you know it's it's shampooed it's uh, it's well it's uh, as if they had brushed the the, the mustache and the and <sighs> and the hair and and uh, it's it's on on shelves except except that it's like uh, as I said it's like a, a hen coop you know with it's it's a battery it's it's almost frightening it's it's been cleaned and maybe this is this comes from the the the, the depth of and innocent and I think that it's a respectable penchant of the Germans towards order, well-keeping, being attentive, probably, you know, it's the town that did that. And, and of course, it's, uh, it's important. It's, uh, so one mustn't lose one, one stone. You know, they've, they've been counted. I don't know how many they are. So, and I, I thought, I thought this is. It's a kind of metaphor of uh, the, the 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 huge differences between inner drives towards aesthetics, but aesthetic is something that has to do with with the soul, of course. <laughs> so, uh, and so I thought, who could who could in front of this memorial? have an emotion it's impossible it, the emotion is what i described that is it's so it's so kind and and, and uh, it it comes from a good heart that the the city has done this and done it with scrupulously and uh, well my my final question I wanted to connect this sense of well-keptness and cleanness to something that I haven't been able to stop thinking about ever since I read it in the last section of the three steps on the ladder of writing. It's the section called the school of roots. Um, in well-kept ruins, the book we're talking about today, you say the ruin exudes, it sweats. You can see nature coming back. The ruin comes back. It's the beginning of a story. And, and when I think about a true ruin exuding or a true ruin sweating, unlike the one in the cage with the neatly stacked stones, a ruin coming back, a ruin as a beginning, I think of something that you say about Liz Spector in relationship to Leviticus in the Hebrew Bible. I don't think it's a coincidence that these two iconic Jewish writers that you write about, Kafka and Lisbechter, who both have impossible origins too, Kafka, a German-speaking Jew in Prague, Lisbechter, a Ukrainian Jewish refugee in Brazil, that they're both focusing on the unclean, on vermin, on cockroaches, on the dirty other that we want to expel. In the School of Roots, you talk about 
the prohibitions in Leviticus against that which is unclean or immond, um, which literally means something out of this world or outside of this world, but is usually translated as unclean or impure or abominable. And, and Liz Spector's character literally puts the, the paste oozing from the cockroach into her mouth in, in The Passion, according to G.H. You say that for you, writing and women are associated with abomination. So by extension, uncleanness also. And for Liz Spector, joy is imond, unclean, being Imond with joy. You say if we are in joy and in love with writing, we should try to write the Imond book. The Imond book is the book without an author. It is the author that makes us experience a kind of dying that drops the self, the speculating self, the speculating clever eye. It is a book stronger than the author. I think of this sweating ruin that allows nature to come back when you talk about this unclean book, which perhaps is the unclean ruin. Do you, do you see this taboo of touching or consuming the unclean as related to these Osnerbrook books in some way? You know, uh, this notion of unclean or immond, uh, as... Uh, as it is in the passion uh, of the spectre, um, is different from that of Kafka. Mm. It's not vermin. It's it's on the contrary a way of being at peace with what is supposed to be vermin. It's not pejorative. It's it's a way of on the contrary of uh, welcoming, uh, adopting as equal uh, what we what what the law. And, uh, and and disgust and everything that is uh, hostile to what is what is strange different to to welcome the the migrants <laughs> to realize that w- what we reject what we vomit really uh, is it's ourselves <laughs> so. Um, when we are afraid, when we we are afraid, when writing, um, we we hesitate in front of the difficulty of facing what we suppose to be evil. Theme of Dostoevsky. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's because we have been contaminated by the. The restrictions, the, um, the 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 fundamental hostilities which human entertain towards what is for th- for them not human as it should be conventional. It's exactly uh, the the spider case. You know why do we hate spiders? That right goes on and on like that. So so Kafka, of course, when when he writes on the metamorphosis. And everything he says is from the point of view of a of a, an affirmed Jew who who still belongs, and it's most important to to his 
to his time, that is the, the 20s of the 20th century, where uh, he doesn't hesitate. He is, he is Jewish completely. He is Jewish. What is interesting, you know, you probably know that uh, this is my experience, my recent experience. I've read Kafka all my life in different uh, editions, always different. It's terrible. Uh, and, and I realized from the last publications that so many pieces, uh, so many chapters of, chap of, of Kafka deal with being a Jew that were completely eliminated for 80 years. Wow. As if one tried to avoid, you know, what is shameful and dangerous, he's being so Jewish, which which is not the case of Lispector, not at all. You might read her without realizing. Hmm. I think the, these things should be also um, perceived because it, it it has all kinds of consequences when you read, etc. I think so too. In that section, the the school of of roots, you say that everything ends in flowers. That at the very end, the last things Liz Spector and Kafka wrote were about flowers. And there you write in the journey toward the origin, in the return to roots, there is passage through the animal state then through the vegetal state. And so we move away from humankind. From the vegetal, we descend into the earth by the stem, by the root, until we reach what doesn't concern us, although it exists and inscribes itself, which is of the mineral order. Perhaps flowers are our last human stage. And in your garden lecture, when asked what your ideal garden would be, you say it would be a cemetery, but you also say a book of hospitality to all species and genres, one that would include the dead, but would also include animals and vegetables in exchange with us. Um, I just wanted that as a preface to saying I'm very grateful for the exchange that we, we've had today, Ellen. Uh, thank you for for spending this time with me together. Thank you, David. I'm, I'm really uh, stunned by, by your your attention and uh, your generosity. Mm. I'm impressed by your approach. It's, it's absolutely remarkable. Thank you. Thank you. We've been talking today to Ellen Siksu about her latest book, Into English, from Siegel Books, Well-Kept Ruins. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Join our brainstorm of future guests. Receive the supplementary resources with each conversation and choose from a wide variety of other potential enticements. Whether becoming an early reader for Tin House, 
receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to any number of gifts and collectibles from past guests, from out-of-print chapbooks by Ursula K. Le Guin, to writing consultations from people who've been on the show, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. Not to mention the ever-growing bonus audio archive, including a nearly hour-long, dynamic, and deep conversation with the Len Sikhsu's translator, Beverly B. Brahek. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Alice Evelyn Yang in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Nichelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. Thank you.